in all seriousness, we should be more empathetic to the human beings around us. But not Alabama. This is Chapel Bell Curve, a podcast about football and feelings. I'm Yara. And I'm Nathan. And today we are here to talk about the 2023 SEC championship game between your Georgia Bulldogs and everyone's favorite Lakers slash Duke slash Yankees fan program, the Alabama Crimson Tide. We will be covering this in an in-depth manner, both qualitatively and quantitatively. In our qualitative session, we'll have some history of the Crimson Tide. We will get to know the history of the program. We will play a game. We will give you some news updates, and then Yara will get their feelings out and talk about a story, an unflattering story about a former Tide player. In our quantitative session, we will be talking about getting to know this team on the field, Bama that is, what's their personality, what are the players to know, what do we think this matchup looks like, and what would we like to see? Then we'll be making some score predictions for the game. Inshallah, they are accurate if we say that UGA is going to win. That is just a word I use now. I'm not sure if it's cultural appropriation, but whatever. Anyway. You could, I give you Yara. permission to use it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'm sure that any other person of Muslim faith will totally believe me that I have a 22-year-old Palestinian friend who said that I could use the word inshallah in everyday speech. Anyway, Yara, if people would like to get more involved with this podcast and perhaps themselves earn the inshallah pass, what can they do? If you want to listen more to this podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. For as little as $1 a month, you can come join a great community of patrons and have access to our unedited show feed and listen to us record live and look at our notes, which today have a bunch of pictures of Alabama's mascot that I, like none of these mascots I would trust with my drink. This is actually very scary. Why does he have clay ears? Go find out at patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. Let's get qualitative. Let's do it. We're going to start today with some news updates. And today, in the absence of Justin, who is still just slammed at work right now, Yara has taken up the yoke, has taken up the, the, the torch, and has got some news updates. Yara, hit us. Okay, this is the final SEC game broadcasted on CBS and I don't know how you feel about that, but I always find it sad when it's the last time something happens. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. <laughs> You're such a kind soul. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, I'm going to miss the music. CBS owns the rights to the music. The ba 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 That music, they own the rights to it. And it's really disturbing. They've been using it on their Big Ten broadcast. So it'll be like, welcome to Michigan at Purdue. It's it's horrible. But I, I'll miss that. I really was a Vern Lundquist fan, and I really don't like Gary Danielson. So from a experiential standpoint, I won't necessarily miss the CBS games. It is the end of an era, and CBS has had a huge impact in making the SEC what it is today both in terms of exposure and in terms of the money that it's brought into the conference. So I'm not really angry at it. I will say one thing I'm really excited about that about, and this is not really inside baseball. This is something that fans I think know as well. CBS will make every game last three and a half to four hours. And that is obnoxious. They take so many TV timeouts. I have been at multiple games where it's been a touchdown TV timeout, Extra point, TV timeout, kickoff, TV timeout. Like three in a row like that. And they're all long. So ESPN tends to be a lot more snappy with their games, both in terms of the length of TV timeouts and the frequency of them. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited to not have to mute Gary Danielson anymore. I don't like have a lot of announcer opinions, but I don't like Gary Danielson. Word. I don't know who that is, but I li like, listen, in theory, I know who he is, but in practice, I don't listen when they introduce themselves, which I'm really sorry if y'all are listening to this, I'll do my best to listen to it. Normally, I'm not, I'm not thinking by the time the game starts. I'm just thinking about barking at people. 
but I guess I guess I I'll think- miss them. <laughs> No, that's a pure experience. I don't think you should adulterate your experience with announcers. I also think like announcing can be something that is additive to the game and a really good announcer. Like I think Vern Lundquist had the capability to do this. And I think there are other announcers who are quite good at it today. But I I think a good announcer really adds a lot. But your average announcer is just sort of background noise. I have I have been very happy when ESPN will sometimes have a crowd noise only feed which is just so delightful where it'll just be like what it sounds like in the stadium at any given time. Love that. I, you know, in terms of as someone who goes to most of the games, I am also not like a, I'm not a guy with a lot of announcing hot takes cause I just don't watch most of them. But when I do, I, I'm not a big Gary Danielson guy. Anyway, what other news items do we have? Okay, let's get some injury updates. These are as of Monday during Kirby Smart's press conference. Sunday or Monday, one of the days. Um, so here are some questionable people. Julian Humphrey, with his upper body injury that he sustained during Old Miss, is week to week, as is Jerron Dumas Johnson. And Lad McConkey with his ankle, um, a lot of reports are saying he was running full speed at practice, so that'll be nice. Um, Rara Thomas still has his foot sprain. Hmm. And Terry Ledge uh, has his knee injury that he sustained during Tennessee. And Kirby Smart said that it's a bone bruise after banging knees with alignment on the team. I, like, I've never, I'm fortunate in that I've never broken a bone or anything like that. But I have had some bone bruises. That shit hurts. So I hope he feels better soon. And Brock Bauer's comeback challenge. I miss him. Kirby said that Brock was probably the closest of being ready to go of those guys, but it just didn't feel as good as it has. He was a little sore. We wanted to see what he could do if he felt comfortable with it, but just didn't think that he could go. It was nothing about who we were playing or anything else. He's got to be able to compete at a high level and feel good about what he's doing. We didn't feel that he had that, which I think it's a lot of, you know, fluff for they're saving him for this game then they're saving him for this weekend he's got to operate yeah 100 i don't think on the one hand i his his general point that you know we need him to be able to operate at a high level regardless of who we play i think that is true but his more specific point of it didn't matter who we were playing that's bs i think if we'd been playing alabama last week it would have been like you know, Dr. Shot Boy comes in and just like hits you up in the ankle and then you do you do the game. I will say that traditionally in Kirby speak, Julian Humphrey and Jamon Dumas Johnson being week to week probably means that they're out. I think Lad McConkey has been is gonna be in. I have heard on some pay websites, but also I have heard like from people I know who would know that Lad McConkey is coming back. So we'll see. I've been wrong before. You also have a couple of other notes about injuries that I think are going to be actually even more impactful even than Brock to this game. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to start with us and then I'm going to move to not us. Um, My final note on us is Warren Brinson's probable. I think he's just a cool dude. And Kirby said, Warren took some reps today. I thought he did a good job pushing through. So yay for that. And now, not us news, Bama's leading rusher, Jace McClellan, missed practice for the the second consecutive day on Tuesday, according to some sources that told Bama Central, who then told me. Um, And I, God, I love it when my enemies fail. I don't, like, ah, ah, I'm so excited. I'm going to talk so much shit about Alabama. I'm just letting y'all know. It's going to be crazy. But, yeah. That's that's the big news. I think that's great for us. I'm really excited. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that it is, you know, Bama is a team that is sort of built around Jalen Milrow for better and for worse. But I do think that if you, they are predominantly a running team and they are a team that sort of operates and flows through their run game. And we, I have some stats on this, but basically Jalen Milrow is a way better quarterback when the, when the run game is going. And so it is really important for us 
if he can't go, man. I I'm I don't know. We'll see. But I'm just, you know, I don't pray for anyone to be injured. But if he could cure, if he could be cured, like with at you know with ten seconds left in the game, that would be make me happy. Real. All right. You have some storylines that I think might be important to talk about. Yes, I do have storylines. You know, normally we try to be a little bit above the fray here in terms of week-to-week storyline stuff. But I think that coming into the SEC championship game, you can't deny that the narrative power of the moment, especially where this is basically a play-in game for the playoff, is something to talk about. And I think that the championship and the CFP is really the thing that contextualizes this game and makes it must-see TV, personally. I think that this is a game that UGA gets in with a bullet, maybe as the number one seed if they win. And if they lose, I suspect UGA will not go. And so that's just where we are. I think that it is just worth talking about that in terms of this game has serious repercussions on the rest of the season, which is the way it should be, I think. I'm happy that this is a game that is being played for keeps. You know what I mean? We have played games against teams in the SEC championship where we knew that it was not a sure bet if they beat us that they would go, right? And I think it's cool that Alabama knows that there is a CFP spot on the line, and we do too. That's not really in any way affecting my analysis of the game, but I just think it's neat. In terms of just general shit talk stuff, I'm seeing a lot of stuff about how we haven't beat Saban in an SEC championship. And it's true. And do I have trauma about that? Yes, I absolutely do. But I'm not sure if in terms of a shit talking point that really holds water when the last big game that these two played was a loss in the national championship for Bama. I am spooked about having to play Bama in the Mercedes-Benz stadium because I was there for second and 26 in that same building. But I'm not sure that it has the same sort of logical or argumentative power that it used to now that Kirby has gotten the monkey off his back outside of Atlanta. I'm just saying, Tide fans, shut the fuck up. Uh, Also, if Bama wins this game, it will be the second largest upset of of the Nick Saban run in terms of point spread. I think the largest was like six and a half against Florida back in like the early days of Saban, like 2010 or something, 2009. And the uh, right now, I think it's a five-point game, so I don't think it'll be that, but it looks like it's going to be the second biggest upset in terms of the Vegas line if Bama were to win. I don't know if that matters. I just think it's interesting that that is where Bama is. It's been a long time since they were more than a two-point underdog to anybody. And... That's just an interesting storyline for me. Finally, and this is just a more general storyline about college football fans and, you know, writ large, but I think we can all agree that as privileged as we are to be UGA fans, and as much as we need to check our privilege, there is not a more spoiled, pampered, 10-ply, Charmin soft fan base than the Alabama fan base. I think we can all agree that, right? And, and I just feel like in terms of their own personal development of, as humans, Alabama needs to lose some more games. I think psychologically we would help them become healthier, more self-actualized people if they lost this game. And I actually think that the biggest thing that would help Bama's fan base sort of zeitgeist would be for them to lose this game big. Because really, where do we learn who we are but in our failures? And as this is a fan base that so self-internalizes their successes without really putting anything into the institution, including actually going to it. I think that it's equally important that they self-internalize this failure, even though they don't play and haven't been near a football field since they graduated high school in 1988. So I would say if you're a Bamba fan, for your own mental health, it is a self-care act to root for UGA. That's not really a storyline, but these this fan base is the most like 
Duke basketball slash Lakers slash Yankees in the Twitter bio fan base of all time. It's awful. And I'm just really, I'm really look. I'm praying on their downfall. You know, are you it, it is a gaslight flaw. Bama fans into enjoying losing? Is that what's yeah. happening? Excellent. Yeah. Please continue. <clears throat> you know, one of the most common, well, in my view, one of the most common ex- examples of fallacious reasoning in the way that modern humans analyze the, you know, like reality like the news is that we have a tendency to want to slap the the arcs and the iconographic imagery of western storytelling and narrative onto real life we love when david beats goliath right we love when there's a sudden reversal at the end we love when the hometown boy does good these are all just us loving the stories that we tell ourselves about the way the world works, right? And while those are powerful stories, and while I think myth has a vital role in creating a, a, a loving and empathetic human culture, what I will say is that they sometimes they sometimes blind us to what we need as humans as opposed to what we want, right? And I think Bama fans feel like they they need the validation of beating Georgia as an underdog to assert the supremacy as the best ever. But what they but that's not really true. That's just what they want. What they need is to be ruthlessly and and just unerringly humiliated. I want Bama fans to leave MBS on Saturday feeling like they just watched Oppenheimer. That's my goal. I want them to be thinking about entropy and the futility of life. And how like it takes the 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 irascible, unbreakable nature of the human spirit to defeat that futility. And I know that that's going to be hard for them because they are collectively a bunch of little toddler piss babies that need diapers. But that I think that that's what's good for them, right? Good characters are created by what they want versus what they need. And to go back to my narrative analogy, I think that Bama is a character that needs humbling. I've already been humbled. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Gunships off fire on fire off the shoulder of Orion, second and twenty-six, Tua, Bryce Young. I've seen it all. You people don't even know what pain is. Anyway, yeah. I don't know what we're talking about anymore. History of Bama football. So Bama <laughs> kind of owns this rivalry with Georgia. They really have. Currently, per Winsipedia, this is forty-two twenty-six and four with Bama on top. This was a particularly lopsided rivalry. It was not frequently played after about 1965, but in the intervening years between 1965 and this year, UGA has only won six times, right? So this was a, this is sort of a rivalry that has been absolutely dominated by Alabama. Some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Bear Bryant was the coach for a lot of the series history when we were really playing every year. And some of that also has to do with now that Nick Saban is the head coach. So I don't, you know, what are you going to do? In terms of the history of the program, if you don't know the history of Bama, I don't know what to tell you. Just like go to any airport bookstore and you can see some kind of hagiography of some old white guy who thinks he's a good novelist sucking their dick. You're not going to hear it from me. They're Bama. They're a good program. Fuck off. Anyway. Mascot history. So, two interesting facts. There are some interesting things about Bama, other than their their modern dominance, which I think is boring and fascist. And I realize that I'm just trying to replace one dictator with another and rooting for UGA, but whatever, that's life. I contained multitudes. Fuck you. Yeah. So, <laughs> I really appreciate that energy. Like, like the... Like the, the cat that's like, yeah, that's what he said. The little yeah, animated pretty cat. much. I'm anyway. just here for support, man. Yeah. UA's football team was known as the Thin Red Line or the Crimson White until 1907 when Alabama went to Birmingham to play heavily favored Auburn. Birmingham has famously iron rich soil, which is like super red. It's even redder than like Georgia Red Clay. Oh. And basically, Alabama's white jerseys got stained red in that game, which ended up as a tie, which was like a big deal. And the 
editor uh, Hugh Roberts of the Birmingham Age Herald is supposed to have said that the team played like a Crimson Tide. So, and this is per Bama's official website. So that's, you know, a cool name, I suppose. Now, they didn't actually have the association of the elephant with the Crimson Tide until 24 or 23 years later in 1930 because they were playing a Alabama Ole Miss game and maybe played in a neutral site in Atlanta. But anyway, an Atlanta sports reporter apparently described the team's impressive size and ability as the uh, as like the stampeding of elephants. He said, at the end of the quarter, the earth started to tremble. There was a distant rumble that continued to grow. Some excited fans in the stands bellowed, hold your horses, the elephants are coming, and out stamped this Alabama varsity. Uh, other reporters began referring to Alabama's crimson-clad team as the Red Elephants shortly after. During the 79-seating season, there was a lot of pleading with Bear Bryant, and eventually, in the 79 season, he allowed them to adopt the Big Al mascot which is the first time that it was used in 79. Now, if you are on our Discord at the $3 level and above, you can see these show notes because I released them at the $3 level and above today because I was just feeling nice. And on them, I have pulled some archival images of Big Al. And it's like, I don't mind the current Big Al, but there's not a single iteration of him before the current one that isn't horrible. The first one looks like something out of the sex scene from The Shining. You know when he walks into like the super sexy party in the middle of the shiny and it's like all these like old people it's it's super eyes wide shut. It's like if the Western Kentucky Hilltopper went to a swingers party wearing a mask. So that's not great. And the second one looks like a bad guy from a 2000s cartoon network show. Samurai Jack looking ass. He looks like a like a like a bad guy that would be on Dexter's lab. Can't stand it. And then the third one, which is from the 80s, looks like the things that scared me from Winnie the Pooh when I was a kid. Do you ever watch Winnie the Pooh, Yara? No, you didn't. You never. Yeah. You don't watch TV. Yes, I did. Oh, you have? Yeah. You watched Winnie the Pooh. Okay. Okay, you got one. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> so, you know, the, have you seen the Winnie the Pooh thing with the heffalumps and the woozles? No. <laughs> it's the scariest shit in the world. There's this scene in the old the school fuck? Winnie the Pooh where he has... He has a dream of heffalumps and woozles, and it's like, welcome to the nightmare palace, bitch. And it's so scary. And that's what this big owl looks like. And the 1980s one kind of looks like an, like the mascot animal character from a bad anime that you shouldn't watch. So that's Word. where we are. Yeah. Big Al sucks. I, I don't, man, fuck. I, like, I don't, I don't even have the words. To describe how I feel about these images. Just bad, you know? Mm -hmm. Agreed. uh, uh, In Arabic, we have this thing called Ibn al And that basically, that just just translates to son of a bitch, you know? And that just, Mm. except it's like very, very serious. Because you're also calling your mom a bitch, you know? And that's how Mm. I feel about this specific animal. I don't say that often because I believe that moms need to be respected. But... This is Ibn al This is a son of a bitch, you know? This is a bitch mm, and a half. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel. Yeah. You got some notable nemeses on here. I do. I have two rounds. The first round is our traditional. It's alumni. So half of these people went to Alabama. There are six of them. Half of them did not. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. First up, Courtney Cox, star of Friends. You know who that is? Yes. Okay, good. Okay, good. One for one. Harper Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird, the book that everyone was forced to read in the eighth grade and didn't understand the nuances of. And that's not their fault. That's usually their English teacher's fault. Anyway, Melissa Joan Hart. Are you familiar with her? She played Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I got nothing. No? You can look her up if you want to see what one of my first straight awakenings was, was watching Melissa Joan Hart, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Next up, we have... Condoleezza Rice. Who? Condoleezza Rice. This sounds like somebody you're expecting me to know, and I don't know who that is. She was the, I believe, Secretary of State under George Bush. She was the first black female member of the cabinet. I was not alive when, wait, was I alive when George Bush was president? I don't know. I wasn't conscious, but that's cool. 2001 to like 2008, I guess, 2009. Oh shit, I was alive. My bad. 
You don't know who? Are you sure you don't know who Connolly? All right, yeah, Secretary of I'm State. I'm almost really positive I don't his, know. No, it's fine. It's fine. A famous, a famous person. This next one, I hope you know, Bernie Madoff. No. Famous scan artist. You don't know who Bernie Madoff is? This is like recent history, Yara. I'm just like offline, man. I okay. I do so my like in the <laughs> Bernie Madoff was a was a New York financier, and in the mid 2010s. He was discovered to have run the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. He oh, basically scammed he scammed people out of billions with a B dollars. He scammed so many people that like the Mets, like the New York Mets, the MLB team, lost millions of dollars to him. Oh my god. He's one of the most notorious financial criminals in the history of capitalism. He Damn. like he gets referenced in rap songs. That is the level of notoriety. But he ran the most successful and widespread Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. He's also in prison for life. And finally, we have Joe Scarborough, who is a MSNBC pundit and political analyst. All right. So those are our six. I'll go over them again. Courtney Cox, Harper Lee, Melissa Joan Hart, Condoleezza Rice, Bernie Madoff, and Joe Scarborough. We, you fucked up because we actually talked about Harper Lee previously, I think, in our Bama episode, and you told me that um, they went to Alabama. So, ha I know I, I, I didn't fail this one. I got one. I kind of put that one in hoping that you would remember it because I thought you might not know who some of these people were, and I wanted to give you a good win. So, Thanks. thank you for following through. I got you. I think... That all of the women here did not go to Bama because I don't, I just don't think that happened. And I think the men did. So that's, that's besides Harper Lee. So that's Bernie, Bernie Madoff, Mr. Ponzi Incorporated, and Joe Scar, Scarborough? Yeah. I don't know who that is. But I bet they went to Bama. Everyone else didn't. Joe Scarborough? He's like, one of the most famous political pundits in the world, like right now, like he's on TV right now, like in 2023 as we speak. I, my bad, man. I've been in finals mode. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. And much to my frustration, again, you have gotten this perfectly correct. I don't I know if you just are. Know. I don't know if you are just like capable of reading me or something. I don't know what this is. Oh, late breaking news. Do you know what just happened? Breaking, breaking political died? news. Henry Kissinger died. Yeah. I didn't know if we were going to oh talk about God. it or not. I just no, saw that he died. No, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> He's dead. War criminal and architect of the Vietnam War. Yeah, for real. I'm, I want to go like buy champagne after we finish recording. Because I think I, that think I deserve I'm it. As happy that he died as I was that Margaret Thatcher died. But that might just be because of my personal vendetta against Margaret Thatcher. But yeah, I'm not happy that anyone died, but I do think it's important to think about that sometimes when people pass away, the general public thinks that the world improved because of their absence. It's a powerful lesson in the way that we act towards people around us. And I realize I did just spend 15 minutes talking shit about a land-grant university in another state. Actually, that was a trick. They don't have a land grant, which leads us to our second round of peer institutions. Our <laughs> notable nemeses, peer institutions. This was a crazy so, transition. Hell yeah, it was. In all seriousness, we should be more empathetic to the human beings around us. But not Alabama. Anyway, ah. so I don't know if you are aware of this, but because of the way that collegiate... Uh, sort of certification of degrees works and collegiate accreditation works. Most public colleges are required by their accreditators uh, to come up with a list of peer institutions and uh, aspirational institutions. Okay. So your peer institutions are the people who you think are in about the same place as you in terms of your research impact and in terms of your endowment and your enrollment and who you are trying to sort of be as good as or above. Okay. Your aspirational institutions are the colleges that you are trying to be better. You're trying to like aspire to be as good as. Okay. So to give you an example of a chain of these, right. Uh, 
Tennessee, the University of Tennessee, one of their aspirational universities is the University of Georgia. The University of Georgia, one of their aspirational universities is the University of Michigan. And I believe Texas and Austin. Okay. So these are, and these are like the internally identified schools that universities have said that they think they are as good as academically. All right. So I'm giving you four. Three of these are identified peer institutions of the University of Alabama. You with me so far? So the four are UAB, Texas Tech, UGA, and Southern Miss. There's no way that UGA is a peer institution. We're like, we just got ranked as like 16 or 17 in the fucking nation for public institutions. We're a top 20 school. You're right. You're right. I made this one really easy. And here's why. The whole point of this is to talk shit about Alabama. It's barely a game. So yeah, some, something that's really <laughs> funny about Alabama is that they do not publicly identify, or it's very hard to find them to publicly identify their peer institutions. I don't know if this is like institutional arrogance or like exceptionalism, but I spent a long time Google fooing my way through the ua.edu website today and I couldn't find it at all. But I do happen to have a Chronicle of Higher Education login, and they've maintained a database for a long time of what universities say their peer institutions are, which they're, are, they're obligated to have publicly available. So I got under the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and it turns out that UAB, Texas Tech, and Southern Miss are all peer institutions of the University of Alabama that, you know, that Alabama has identified. What is hilarious about this fact is Alabama identified these three schools as being like, hey, they're about the same as us in terms of where we are in academically and institutionally. Okay. None of these schools are reciprocal peer institutions. And in fact, Alabama only has like two reciprocal peer institutions that I could find where they say someone else is their peer and that peer says that they're back. And what's even buck wilder is some of them that they've put on this list of peer institutions are very clearly not peer institutions like UNC Chapel Hill. And I believe another one of them was like Texas at Austin and Michigan. These are like top 10 public universities and none of them acknowledge that Alabama is a peer institution. So I'm happy personally that at some level institutionally, that Alabama is just as charm and soft academically as they are in terms of their athletics. And that was the point of this game. It was barely a game at all. And I apologize for duping the audience. We expect your notes app apology published on the Twitter tomorrow, actually. Yes. I will be publishing a very sad notes app apology on Sunday if we lose. And a no top apology that turns into the like, I'm not going anywhere scene from the Wolf of Wall Street if we win. Nice. I have watched that movie. Huzzah. All right. There we go. That you're like one for 20 and that's better. You know, you got your first hit in the big leagues. All right. It is time for we're not going to have a porn corner today because Justin's not here. And I don't feel that I have the ability that Justin does to make like PG-13 erotic poetry. Mine would be like either deeply uncomfortable or deeply pleasing to you, depending on who you are. So (laughs) instead of in lieu of that, we are going to have another special segment today, which is called Yara's Feelings Corner. And as we love to do, we are going to let our resident Gen Zer out of their enclosure for some enrichment activities to just gobbling up all over the place and be feral. Yara, what are your feelings about Alabama? Thanks for asking. I have a lot of feelings about Alabama. Um, so whenever you and Justin and like anybody that I talk to in the college football sphere, whenever you guys talk about like Auburn or Florida or like tech, I guess, like there's such a level of hate that like I can kind of get behind for Auburn at least because they stole my water bottles. But I just don't get it for Florida because we just beat them every year. Like, I obviously, like, I hate them, but I don't, like, loathe their existence in the same capacity that a lot of dogs fans do. You know whose existence I do loathe? Fucking Alabama. I do not care for Alabama. I didn't understand, like, the hatred 
towards the University of Alabama until the 2021 SEC Championship when I was in Redcoats. Um, that was the first loss that I experienced as like an actual like enjoyer of college football. And so I was crying a lot. Like I'm a very emotional person. So I was just a fucking mess. And the sousaphones, we like were the last ones to, I guess, get out of the stadium versus the rest of the band. So we were walking down the stairs like, onto the field level towards the exit of Mercedes-Benz, I guess. And I look around. This is, like, on the field. I look around, and I see Jameson Williams just, like, standing there, I guess, talking to some people. I don't know who they were. Um, But he was talking to some people, and we made direct eye contact, and he gave me a little smirk, like an all-knowing, kind of derogatory smirk that, like, you know the smirk that you get from people in a condescending manner? That's exactly how it felt. Just tears down my face. Look at him. He gives me the nastiest fucking look. And I swear to God, every tear that I had produced dried up in that instant. And I just felt like unbridled rage. I, if I did not have an instrument that was half my fucking body weight, like, tying me down, um, I fear for the health of Jameson Williams in that moment. So, yeah. Ever since then... That's my Joker origin story. Um, I do not fucking care for Bama. I do not care for their 5'7 ass head coach, Nick Saban, which I don't know if I've told you, Nathan, but I have a theory that most 5'7 famous men are actually pieces of shit. Like, have I ever told you about this before? Because I'm so dead set on it. I think we have discussed it, but I'm willing to hear you lay it out for me. Oh, I'm so glad. Okay, let me pull up my notes for this. This shit is actually insane. You will not believe the amount of five seven ass men that we despise in this bitch. Ready? Joe Rogan. Also, the, these, these are my opinions and not Chapel Bell Curves, I guess. But Joe Rogan, Mussolini, Tom Cruise, known Scientologist. Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Kim Jong-un supposedly because he won't publish his height. But I think he's 5'7". Ben Shapiro, Nick Saban... Putin, Christian Horner, the Red Bull team principal, Lindsey Graham, um, and Aiden Gallagher, who's this actor that I don't like. All of these men have one thing in common, and that is that they're five foot seven, and thus the bane of my existence. I I have utmost respect for Nick Saban as like a coach. I do not deny that he is revolutionary in his impact on college football, and he will surely be missed when he retires this year which I'm so sure of, and I'm the first one that called it, so don't forget it, but I don't like him as, like, the head coach of the University of Alabama, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have a question, so, and this we yeah, may have up? covered this ground already. Do you have an ex that is 5'7"? No. Okay. So this is just, no. you, you, got, you got in on the Celebrity Height website and just, like, went ham. Yeah, pretty much. And just All for the these record, men are five seven and evil. It's not. It's, I, I'm just calling it out. Yeah, and you might not agree with us about some of these more political names, but how are you going to fend Kim Jong Un and Mussolini? I'll hang up and listen to your answer off the air. Come on now. Fair. All right. What else? Why else do we All not right. care for Alabama? Um, I've had a lot of interactions with their fans online, like on the Chapel Bell Curve. Twitter and I've also seen a lot of my friends interact with Bama fans online and obviously a few bad people are not representative of the entire fan base just as like people that are really mean like that are dogs fans are not representative of the the entirety of dog nation you know but the fact that it's an overwhelming majority of online Alabama fans that you know for example recently quote tweeted or replied to a tweet where they were talking about um, Jaden Milrow saying like, oh, give me the Heisman, give me the Heisman. And we called it out because it was, you know, kind of trashy. Like nobody says that. It's a team effort. You you survive by your team against Auburn by a field goal. It's not that you don't deserve a Heisman for that. I'm sorry. But like the fact that, you know, a dog like person retweeted that and everybody in the replies was talking about, oh, like, UGA, like, you want to talk about culture? Talk about UGA's, like, drunk driving culture in reference to the events that occurred in January. 
and talking about like oh what what about like what Stetson Bennett has gone through which I won't like say just for privacy but like it's it's you know there are lots of rumors on the internet about what has and has happened obviously I don't know anything but when you call stuff out like that it no longer in my opinion is just like regular trash talk between fan bases that's that's cruel it's not just mean it's cruel and it's unnecessary in a college football environment. Just like how it's an unspoken rule to not talk about the 2011 tornado that like rolled through Tuscaloosa and killed so, so many people. Like just like how we don't reference that because it's cruel. I don't think it's right to mention those events because it's, it's hurtful. It's cruel and it's obviously not representative of the culture in any way. I don't think it's right to be talking about that, especially over the internet in like a taunting way or in a derogatory way towards us and the culture that we've built at UGA. I think it's, you know, for a lack of better words, it's really hurtful and things like that can hurt. So BAM fans, like specifically the BAM fans that are saying that shit, y'all calm down because that's, it's not nice. It's really hurtful and mean and cruel and unnecessary in today's college football environment. Yeah, taunt all you want, but don't talk about shit like that because words can hurt, even if they're online. And that's my feelings corner. Thanks. That was inspiring. I feel like we've gotten, we've had a little therapy sesh here today. I want us to just leave the qualitative review on a positive note. And this has nothing to do with the Alabama game, but I do want to say, if you've not seen it, look it up. There's a video online of Jordan Davis singing a Christmas carol for the Eagles Christmas album. And that man has the voice of an angel. I would follow him. I would follow him into hell. And I think that most of the people who would listen to this also agree. Now it's time for our quantitative preview of the SEC championship game. And I have tried to really seed the floor and not mansplain and give Yara plenty of time to get their feelings out and to talk and to be the font of Gen Z energy that my old decrepit body so desperately needs. But now I'm going to talk a lot because I have a lot to say about this football game. And so to the listening audience, I want to apologize that you have to listen to my nasally baritone for what is probably going to be the next 15 minutes straight. And to Yara, my personal friend, I apologize if any of this seems patronizing. Anyway. <clears throat> so if we start in terms of how do, how do we get to know this team? How do we understand what this team is in order to understand how they match up against Georgia? I think we have to start with the arc of their season as a whole. I would say more in, ter in terms of a departure from their traditional season, I think the biggest thing that makes this team different, this Alabama team different, is that they have been lurking and on the national stage for the past eight to 10 weeks. They lost a game to Texas by 10 in the second week of the season. And then I think two weeks or a week later, they played USF and they only won by 10 against South Florida. They had what I think might have been a fabricated quarterback controversy where they switched from Jaden Milrow to a couple of other guys in the USF game. It didn't work. Milrow came back in. Jalen Milrow, I think, is his name. Sorry. Milrow comes back in. He starts getting a lot better. Their offense starts to evolve a little bit more. And they've actually been trending upward in most metrics, especially offensively, for the past five to six weeks. I would say that a big turning point was winning the LSU game. And then I think another big turning point was handling Ole Miss's offense. And outside of the Auburn game, which I have a hard time taking as a real data point in terms of analyzing the how this championship game is going to go because it, you know, it was at Jordan Hare and it's the Iron Bowl and anything can happen. But outside of the Auburn game, this team has looked better and better each week and has really made strides offensively and never had a bad defense to start. So let's get into the specifics. What is the personality of this team? By necessity, I think, also by design, I think this is in, in the sense that I think this is the way that Nick Saban wants it, but also this is the team that he has. They run more than they pass. They run about 51% of the time. In terms of pass plays attempted per game, they are in the lower 
quadrant of the nation. They're like 115th in pass run and pass plays run per game. They do have a very good and effective running game, however. Jace McClellan, if he can go, is a very good running back. He has, he averages 4.8 yards per carry. He's a little bit more of a gap guy than a zone guy. He's very good at hitting the hole. He has an excellent sort of like his ability to never get stuffed is is very good in most metrics. He is a breakaway threat. I don't know that he's like a home run threat, but about 30% of his runs this year go for more than 15 yards. That is why I think the injury to him, if it comes through that he doesn't play, is really, a f- really, really important because he is, I think, in many ways, even more than Milrow, the engine that makes this, this whole offense function. A lot of their offense functions around the threat of the run game and how the threat of having two running two running two players who can run the ball in the backfield effectively changes their passing offense. Milrow is a threat to run, especially scrambling. 473 of his 628 yards this year have come on scrambles. That is runs that were not designed. He's a strong runner based on his frame. He can lower his shoulder. He's quite quick, but he's not like a burner. Generally, he's not a breakaway player, but he is a huge threat in the red zone. And he also is really good on broken plays at running to the sideline for a first down. That is, I think, a underrated ability in mobile quarterbacks. He is he has great awareness in terms of like if it's third and eight and he gets outside of the pocket and he needs to get eight yards, he's really good at getting eight and a half yards. However, he does have seven fumbles. He has not always been taking care of the ball the way that he should. This is a team with a strong offensive line that is better at run blocking than pass blocking. They have surrendered more havoc than an average offensive line does this year. And I think that leaning into their strengths top to bottom, this is a team that wants to run. So if you don't see Jace McClellan line up on Saturday, that is a huge factor in the way this game is going to go. Passing-wise... They've been inconsistent, particularly to start the year, but improving. Now, a lot of this has to do with Milrow and his profile as a pro player. He only has six picks on the year. He has a 75% uh, adjusted completion percentage, which are quite good. He is a an elite short pass throw. Like He's really good at the quick game. He has a quick release. He's really good within nine yards of the long line of scrimmage. And he's also a very good deep ball thrower. So if he's throwing the ball deeper than 19 yards past the line of scrimmage, he is excellent. He's like 54% adjusted completion percentage. That is really good. However, he is not good at intermediate passes between nine and 19 yards. Uh, his adjusted completion percentage between nine yards and 19 is 61%. By comparison, Carson Vex is 72. His adjusted completion percentage on intermediate throws across the middle is actually 50%, which is just bad. He's had 20% of his throws across the middle between 9 and 19 yards have been turnover-worthy plays. This is a guy that is going to bomb it. He's going to throw it underneath to weapons, and he is not going to do a lot of what we think of as like traditional West Coast passing. He can do it. It's not like he's incapable of it, but he is an elite player in many ways, but dropping back and throwing a slant route or a crossing route or a mesh concept is not his strength. He has a great arm, but he's not super accurate, especially when he can't use his arm to get, you know, fix his accuracy. He is incredibly lethal, however, on play action passes. When they get the running game going, and having him as a plus one number in the backfield that can run, he has an 85% adjusted completion percentage when when they're using a play action. He has nine touchdowns and a pick. So that's why I think that a lot of this game, I'm not going to say hinges around Jace McClellan's health, but I think the entire tenor of this game of them with or without their number one rushing threat is different. Let's see. Defensively, they're quite good, especially in the secondary. They have... Probably the best pair of cornerbacks that we played this year in Kool-Aid McKinstry and Terry and Arnold. I would say McKinstry is probably a step above Arnold. He's one of the better cornerbacks in the country. Caleb Downs is a freshman who you're going to see all over the field. He is he plays a similar role to I mean he's okay. Pause. Back up. 
He does play safety, but in terms of run support, you see him around the ball a lot the way you see Tyke Smith on Georgia, who is a star and not a safety, I understand, which is why I pause myself. But I think he he has a similar impact on the game. He is a ball hawk. He makes plays all over the field. He's a dude who you're going to keep your eye out for. Uh, I think that we think we can run on their guys. The, these guys, they give up in a, a below average EPA per play, below average yards per play, below average success rate when opponents run the ball. Also, their stuff rate is below average. They give up efficient runs consistently. I think we're going to see a steady dose of Kendall Milton and Dejan Edwards because of it. They cause an above average amount of havoc, in particular from the front seven. Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell are real threats. They're edge players who are serious threats in the pass rush. They have accounted for respectively 50 and 49 pass, uh, pressures on pass sets. Uh, Dallas Turner is a really good player who occasionally will miss a tackle, but is an elite pass rusher. I think that he is a guy that we probably think we can run at as opposed to away from. Their interior linebackers, they play a slightly different system in terms of nomenclature than us, so they just call them linebackers. But what we would call ILBs are Jihad Campbell and Deontay Lawson are their two best interior linebackers who have the most play. Campbell's a good all-arounder. He's a good tackler. He hasn't always been great at run fitting. I would say that he is probably like a Smile Munden comparison. Uh, Lawson, Deontay Lawson, is a guy who is a really good pass rusher. He comes on a lot of blitzes. He gets after the quarterback well. He is probably a step behind Jihad Campbell in terms of being a well-rounded player. However, this is a team with a really good defense, a improving offense, and yet nothing about them screams the Bama that we typically think of in terms of coming into this game, in terms of like the past 15 years. If you look at their stat profile and you can look on game on paper, which is a great website, or you can do to go to r2sportsmetrics.com and look at our self-generated advanced stat sheets. But if you look at the ranks of their advanced stat profiles anywhere, what you'll see is that like, this is a team that has a lot of pretty good ranks and very good stats, you know, in the thirties and twenties and teens and a couple of low stats, which is they they don't have a very good run defense, but not a lot of things that they are a top 10 team in. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a top 10 team. I think talent and coaching makes them a top 10 team. They have a plus 8.8 uh, net success rate, which is really good. By comparison, UGA, by the way, has a plus 13.2 net success rate, just for the record. Um, but this is a very good, obviously top 10 team. It is not the Death Star that we associate with modern Alabama. That doesn't mean they won't win this game, but if we're thinking about the personality of this team, at least statistically, this is not the team that previous teams have been, right? This isn't even really like the Bryce Young Alabama team. This is a team that has some very good elite players, has five stars over the field, but has yet to really put it together and show that they can be elite on either side of the ball. They are very good on both sides of the ball, but both sides of their ball have flaws. That is also true of UGA, but I think that UGA is closer to elite on offense than any. UGA's offense is, I think, the best unit on the field in this game, and they are the closest thing to an elite unit of any of the four units that we will see play. That's who they are. So going into what we want to see, just to kind of set this up a little bit for you, Yara, if we think about how that matches up with UGA's sort of like strength on weakness, strength on strength, in terms of the profile of Alabama that I've just described, one thing that I think stands out to me is that Alabama's rush game versus UGA's uh, rush defense is, I think, what decides the game. In particular, UGA's defense versus Jalen Milrow running, I think, decides the game. If they cannot establish an effective running game, they're going to have a hard time beating this UGA defense. UGA has one elite top 10 pick cover corner and two to three very good cover corners and two of the best safeties in the game. If you let them drop six or seven, or God forbid, if you let them drop eight, UGA is going to just keep everything in front of them and you're not going to score a lot. Now, the way you avoid that if you're Alabama is you run the ball effectively and you make them respect the run and you make them respect Milrow, 
with the ball in his hands. But if you can't run the ball and you can't key your offense off of the play action like they have done so often because of Milrow's efficacy in that department, you're going to have a really long day against the Kirby Smart coach team. The other thing that stands out to me is that UJ's offense is just good. UGA is built to win a shootout. That is shocking for me to say. I would say in many ways, the relative position of these two teams reminds me of where they were in 2017, but reversed. Coming into the 2017 national title, there was a lot of questions about, can this UGA team win in a shootout? Yeah, they have Jake Fromm and they have a lot of weapons, but are they really designed with skill talent on the edge to score 40 or 50 points in a game? And Bama was like the all everything with, you know, 10 first round pick wide receivers. Now UGA doesn't quite have that in terms of the skill talent that they have, but they are producing at a 2017 Bama level on offense. They are one of the best offenses in the nation. And I think that that the ability of UGA to stop Bama is going to, is what's going to determine the outcome of the game because I don't think Bama is going to consistently beat stop this team on offense because I don't think anyone is going to consistently stop this team on offense. If you want to beat this UGA team, you're going to probably have to score like 35 points. And I think that's what the game comes down to. In light of those stats, what do you want to see in this game, Yara? First off, our O-line and our D-line just like actually working as a unit. I want to see us performing cohesively because this will be this will be the game and if we you know if we win it's going to be hard fought and it's going to be hard won i'm not even going to say if i'm going to say when because manifestation is real like that i i think that something our discord just also said sacks i agree i want to see us just like pummel through I want to see us sacking. I want to see us continuing to consistently, like, perform. I don't want to see what we did this past weekend versus Georgia Tech, which I don't think would happen again. But that's just what I don't want to see. Um, I was talking about this game with a few of my friends, and we were all in agreement that this is going to be hard fought, but we need to show up, and we can't let the impact of Mercedes-Benz, like, influence us in a negative way we have a young team and for some of these guys it's going to be their first time in the bends or one of their first times in the bends and it is it can be a very intimidating environment you know like I remember when I walked onto the field for the first time um it was real and it was an empty stadium there was nobody there like this was just for practice when I walked on there, I was just in shock of, like, everywhere you looked, there were people, there were, like, you know, stands, which would soon be filled by people. And when you get on there, it is a totally different beast than, I would argue, even Sanford. It's scary as fuck. So, as long as we keep our heads down and we work, for, we like, we, we show up like we did against Ole Miss, you know? We show up like we do when there's a funny little number next to our opponent. As long as we pres present and perform as that Georgia and not the Georgia that we saw last week, I think we'll be fine. Thanks. All right. In terms of what I want to see, a couple of things. One, situationally important stops. You don't have to get every stop, but I think the first team to score 30 in this game wins. And I feel like even if it takes a whole half for us to get adjusted, as long as we can go into the half with a shot to win with a one touchdown game, I think we're good. I think the big thing that's going to involve this is, well, I think there's two things in terms of just like on the field play that I really want to see. One, I think we're going to see a lot of middle of the field coverage closed, uh, MOFC coverage defensively, which is when you have usually like one safety back and you have the sides of the deep field open. I think that that's the case because I think our focus is going to be in stopping the run game and bringing an extra man into the box and challenging Bama's good but not great wide receivers to beat us in the back in the defensive backfield. The reason I would suspect that is that I think the strength of this defense is in the defensive backfield and that we probably feel better about one of our safeties back deep than we do about one of our interior linebackers having to make the right run fit. We'll see, though. 
I think we need to make Milrow step up into the pocket. I actually think keeping him in the pocket is probably more important than getting than sacking him. A lot of his sacks this year have come in moments where the pocket has just collapsed onto him, where he stepped up to try to make a throw, and the interior, interior linemen of Alabama have just like given up a pass rush. Putting him on the ground is important, but keeping him in the pocket is also important. And this is something else, and I and I really hate to call anybody out, but some outside linebackers on this team who are white and from Carrollton and named Chaz Chambliss sometimes have not played great against the run, in particular against the run when it goes outside. So either Chaz Chambliss has to figure that out or we have to not play him a lot. I think this is a team that is a bad matchup for him because even though they have been susceptible to the pass rush and they've given up a lot of havoc plays, this is a team that has a big offensive line that wants to run at you. We are going to have to be more sound in terms of the run defense than we have been in the past. A, we're going to have to be more sound in terms of we have the right bodies in the right place, which is how we gave up the long touchdown to Tennessee. And B, we have to be more sound in terms of when we have the body in the right place, are they making the play? Are they defeating the block? Are they actually winning the one-on-one battle? For better or for worse, some of our outside defenders have not done a good job of that. And in particular, people who are like the in man on the line of scrimmage, which is a huge consequential thing in the modern run game. Positive things I would like to see. I think this is a feed Kendall Milton game. Just feels like a game where if UGA can get any kind of lead, they are going to Python you. They've done it all year. They've given up early touchdowns and they've gone down 10 to 14 points even. And then they have worked their way back into the game, gotten a lead, and then just sat on you. I think this might be one of those games. Also, and this is wishful thinking on my part, why not make this Brock Bowers Heisman game? He's hurt. He's coming back from an injury. He's sore. He goes out there and he embarrasses the big bad guy. Come on. Finally, I think if we're just neutral in the turnover battle, we're good. <laughs> I don't even want to win the turnover battle. If we both had no turnovers, I would feel really good about UJ winning this game. In a way that makes me deeply and viscerally uncomfortable, I think this team is better than Alabama. So what do you need to do if you're going to beat a team that is better than you and has performed better than you? You need to get turnovers and you need to have explosive plays. And this year, UGA has had some turnovers at the wrong time, which has made games closer than they need to be. The Auburn game is one of them. The Georgia Tech game is one of them as well. Let's just let's just keep it even. Let's just not turn the ball over. Even if we're playing it safe and we're not going for interceptions, great. Just don't turn the ball over. So, predictions. Yara, the Vegas spread is UGA minus six. That makes me deeply uncomfortable. Our Sam predicted score from Ross Rutledge over at R2 Sports Metrics is UGA 26, Bama 21. What are we feeling? I'm feeling a UGA win, and I'm feeling it by at least a touchdown. And also, we cover the spread. And also, maybe a field goal. That's what I'm feeling. I don't know if that's like, I know that's not particularly descriptive, but I just, you're not going to give me a score? Come on. (laughs) I need a score. Fuck, man. Okay, let's see. I have to, like, do some soul searching for this. I'm not a bit, like, one thing about me, I don't do the whole, like, let's think about, you know, let's think about statistically, where are we? I, when it comes to these scores, I just go with my heart and my soul. And that's my vibe. So I think Bama's gonna do, like, 24. Okay. Eh, 714. Yeah, 24. And I think we're going to do 37. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because then that gets us a touchdown and two field goals ahead. And I like two field goals. I feel like we kick one more at the very end just to, like, secure it. I don't know shit about that though how about you what are your thoughts i think that was a very good score prediction okay really thanks i do yeah that was smart here's what i think i think that i have trauma 
and I'm having a hard time processing that trauma. Okay. <laughs> I'm a little worried. I've been hurt before in this place by this team. It's not the same team, but I've still been hurt before. And I know what it feels like to feel pain in this game particular. So it's hard for me to say this, but I do think UJ is the better team, and I think UJ is going to win. I I don't know that it's going to be a 10-point win or a win where we cover the spread, but I do think UJ will win. I think we'll cover the spread, but not by much. I think, to me, this feels like UGA, this is great audio. <laughs> I'm going to say Bama 24. I think that's a really good number. And Thanks. UGA 31. You don't believe in my final field goal? Well, to me, this just feels like a game. And and I'm, I guess I'm like where my head is at is that I think that this is a game that is really close where UGA pulls away on like a touchdown and then just sits on the game and like basically just hold serve until the end of the game because Bama is very good. That's where I'm at. Inshallah. Word. Yes. You just wrote exactly. inshallah on the notes. <laughs> I'm glad that we're, I, I'm glad that our heads are in the same place. Me too. I, I don't know. Here, we're going to do before we, before we head out. I want to lead us in a manifestation session, just like we did for the other game. Because manifestation, that was yes, let's do it. Yes. Yeah, okay. And listeners, okay, unless you're on the road, because if you're on the road, please don't close your eyes. You're driving. But if you're not driving or you're not doing stuff that is like in super ultra, you know, focus mode, close your eyes and just like take some deep breaths and focus on your breath. I sound like I'm from the valley right now. I hate this. But... Okay, ready? UGA is going to win the football game. UGA is going to win the SEC championship. And we're going to cover the spread. And it's going to be great. And we're going to sack Jaden Milrose so many times. And Nick Saban will walk out with all of his police crew looking sad. Even more sad than that five foot seven ass man already does. And we're going to win. Yeah, I don't have any little like jingle jangles that I can do. The ones where they do it in like manifestation sessions, I don't have any jingle jangles. Imagine, but I do have my water bottle, like the ding. Yeah, I have my water bottle, and I have a part of a hanger that broke off, like the little hangy part. So I'm just gonna, yeah, yeah, great audio. That's my manifestation session. (laughs) I'm gonna take us out. This has been Chapel Bell Curve. If you like what you heard here today, we would love you if you gave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever your fine podcasts are served. If you'd like to get in touch with us today, you can find us at email at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com or on social media, pretty much all social media, Twitter, Facebook, Blue Sky, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, at Chapel Bell Curve. If you'd like to support us in a more discreet, finite way, not finite, uh, fungible way, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Chapo Bell Curve. We will catch you this weekend in the A or parts unknown. But until then, go dogs. Go dogs.